According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 14. We're almost at the end of this chapter. We have done more classes in this chapter than any other chapter in the book of Proverbs, and that's kind of bothering me, but I stay... uh, I stay before the Lord, and I just don't want to get bogged down in things when, uh, if the if uh, the Holy Spirit would have us to continue on. So, uh, anyway, that's uh, just something I wrestle with, not only with this, but with Philippians and with other classes. I, anything I teach, I want to make sure that I'm teaching what the Lord would have for me to teach. So, um, as we look at taunting in verse 31, he who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. But he who is gracious to the needy honors him. And so we're going to have a class of taunting. We're going to take an hour where I'm going to ask for a volunteer. We're going to bring him to the front of the room. And then we're just going to taunt him for, uh, until, until we make him cry. And then uh, that way we'll have a good illustration. You volunteer Lewis. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, no, we won't do that. I'm just teasing. Um, but we want to understand what it's about, though. And I think we get it, right? Don't we understand taunting? Any carnal human understands taunting because you've either been taunted or you've done the taunting or both. And, and so we see, I mean, taunting is, is in carnality, taunting is, is a horrible thing. And when you're taunting God, uh-oh, okay? Because if you think about it, if you taunt somebody that's too big, they're just going to punch you. They're going to, you know, they're going to, you, you know, the thing about taunting is, is you only taunt the one you think you can get away with it. You know, that's like a bully. You taunt the little guy. Uh, if you taunt the big, the big guy, you know, big guys probably don't get taunted so much because, you know, they've got mechanisms to, to answer back. Uh, like Wes Beck, you know, I don't think he ever got taunted. Okay, ever. Um, but think about taunting God that's what we're doing. And that's unthinkable when it comes down to it. So before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to bless our time. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your truth, for your faithfulness. We come before you this morning hungry to be fed, hungry to learn and grow, thankful for the living and abiding Word of God, thankful for the written canon and how you preserved it, Father. Um, saw a thing last night on the preservation of your text. It's just amazing, Father, how wonderful you are. So we thank you for our Bibles. We thank you for the text. We thank you for the blessings we have to study to show ourselves approved. We call upon your faithfulness this morning to open the eyes of our understanding. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so as we deal with this, we are talking about uh, point 20 in our outline. Point 20. We're returning back to rich and poor. We did have earlier verses that dealt with rich and poor in this chapter. Uh, earlier verses dealt with the rich and the poor, but this verse frames the issue as either taunting or honoring God. And it is an either or. And so we want to honor God. And if we fail to honor God, then that is tantamount to taunting Him. Failure to honor God is tantamount to mocking Him, to taunting Him. And this uh, is not only in Proverbs, it's throughout Old Testament, New Testament. We have it in Galatians. We had it not long ago where God is not mocked. For what we sow, so shall we also reap. The law of sowing and reaping in Galatians is, is phrased in these terms of mocking or taunting. And it doesn't say God will not be mocked in the future tense. It says God is not mocked in the present tense. And we had uh, a significant dis- uh, discussion on that back uh, in the Galatians uh, series. And so here in uh, Proverbs fourteen thirty one, we have the statement being made, he who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. And so in that process, in the, in the present tense time, as you're oppressing, if you are oppressing the poor, then in so doing that, that very act is what taunts our creator, our maker. 
but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. Again, that act, the act of being gracious, that act, while you're doing it, as you're doing it, the process of doing it is what honors God. And so that's an, a present act of honoring while you're gracious, and it's a present act of taunting when you are oppressing your uh, neighbor, all right, or the poor. Uh, chapter 17 and verse 5 says the same thing. He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. And so that's a slightly different context, but fundamentally the same message. The present tense of, of mocking the poor is tantamount to and present tense equal to taunting his maker. So while you're doing that, at the same time you're doing that, you're also at the same time mocking God. And then you're storing up for yourself some punishment uh, by rejoicing at calamity. It says you will not go unpunished. There is a future accountability that's guaranteed and promised in terms of that punishment in the future tense. So this is what we're dealing with and we ran out of time last week as we were discussing this, the aspect of taunting. Uh, it's easy to get lost in First Samuel 17 when you turn to David and Goliath. That's a fun chapter, it's fun to read, it's fun to study, but it's uh, beyond just simply being a Bible story comes the fundamental principles of what does it mean to fear God and what does it mean to taunt God because the Philistine was a mocker, he was a taunter and uh, and David addressed that. So Let's return to 1 Samuel 17 just to remind ourselves of this and uh, I won't get bogged down or lost in the, in the swashbuckling, the story. But I do want to highlight the verses that do reference the uh, disdain. It is a complete disdain. Alright? And so when you have a scorn or a disdain, it's an expression of complete disdain, meaning that you view the other as worthless, as less than worthless, as contemptible, and you communicate it effectively. You communicate it outwardly. You know, it's one thing to, it's one thing to, uh, you know, face a Scrabble opponent across the board, and you might be might be very clear that he's better than you are, or you're better than he is. Uh, but on any particular game, maybe the tiles are just going one direction and, and even an inferior player can defeat the, the superior player, right? Uh, so one is better, one is worse. And, and you kind of know that, especially if you play as much as you do. And, and so you kind of know that. You don't have to express that. You don't have to verbally say, you know, boy, you're just a crummy player and you've been a crummy player for a long time and you should be a better player by now and why are you so stupid and why can't you spell, you know, this word? Everybody knows this is how it's spelled. So when you are expressing that complete disdain, <laughs> you see how mocking that is, how taunting that is, how utterly unnecessary that is because clearly it doesn't have to be said. It doesn't have to be spoken. All right. So here's the, uh, here's the taunting in 1 Samuel 17 and uh, the Philistine said in verse 10 I defy, I defy, that's the defiance I defy the ranks of Israel this day give me a man that we may fight together you see and, and the taunt is of course that you have no men, all you have are little boys you, there's no man on your side of the battle line here uh, just a bunch of little boys and give me a man and that's the disdain of verse 10. Verse 25 has the same verb as well. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy. There it is, to defy Israel. He's mocking, he's taunting, he's defying. It's the same verb. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter, uh, his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And uh, that's the, the reward there. Notice they're, uh, they're all wrapped up in the secular reward. They're all wrapped up in the politics, wrapped up in the money, wrapped up in the benefits of having, a, uh, of having the king for a father-in-law, having the benefits of being tax-free in, uh, in your net worth, uh, all kinds of secular benefits. David's concern was he's taunting the living God, this uncircumcised Philistine. And uh, we see this in verse 26. David spoke to the men who were standing by him saying, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine? 
and takes away the reproach from Israel. That's the thing that broke his heart. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Okay? And that's, uh, that's a good passage to consider too for what we're dealing with in, uh, in Hebrews. The, the living word, the living God. Here's the, the, these are the armies of the living God. So that's verse 26. Uh, verse 36 uh, when they tell him, you can't do this, David gives his credentials and says, I've killed lions before, I've killed bears before. I'm not worried about this guy. <laughs> you know? You're, uh, verse 35, or let's see, verse 34, David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a, a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. You know, he's acting like, you know, doesn't everybody do this? <laughs> you know, this is what you do when you're a shepherd. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Okay? Almost makes me want to sing that old Davy Crockett song from the, the you know, about killed him a bear when he was only three kind of a thing. Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee. Anyway, but for, for David though, this is history. This is real. This is, this is what God says David did as a, as a child. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Right? <laughs> you got to love David's spiritual viewpoint on this. It's the taunting that he just can't abide. The taunting he can't abide. You know, it's like if someone else is mocking your sister, you're going to go clock them, okay? Because I'm the only one that's allowed to taunt my sister, you know? I can call her this, I can call her that, I can call her all kinds of things. But if you, if you call my sister that, whoa, wait a minute, okay? And punch you out. He's mocking the living God. David's not going to abide with that. That is unacceptable. And as far as the combat goes, you know, what do you gauge what do you gauge? Do you gauge the size of his, of his uh, spear? Do you gauge the, you know, the length of his reach? You know, boxers that have a longer reach have an advantage over the, the shorter boxers with the shorter arms with a shorter reach. Are you gauging weight? Why do they have weigh-ins at the, at the beginning of the, of the boxing match? Are you gauging, um, you know, you think about all the physical parameters you can gauge. David didn't mention any of that. I mean, it's kind of crude, but David mentioned the foreskin. <laughs> All right? He's not wrapped up about the, the arms or, the, or the, the hands or the spear or the whatever, how tall he is, the kind of reach he has. He mentioned the foreskin. He said this is an uncircumcised Philistine. And, and by virtue of his being uncircumcised, He's taunting the armies of the living God. Circumcision is the, is the sign of the covenant. Circumcision is the witness that the Jewish people are God's people. See? And he's taunting the living God. So that's, to, to David, that's all, that's all you need to say. And uh, that's what he goes, goes for here. So uh, in verse 36, he has taunted the armies of the living God. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, and here's, so David comes out, and first they try to give him all this armor, and David says, I don't need this. And not only do I not need this, I haven't tested this. It's wrong to try to use equipment that you haven't drilled with and practiced with, and uh, no, no true soldier would do such a thing. And so I haven't uh, tested these, haven't tried these, they're not right, so he takes them off. I don't need them anyway. That's verse 39. I have not tested them so he took his stick in his hand, chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. Why did he take five smooth stones? Because there were actually five giants. We learn about that in a later, a later context. Anyway, um, and we get this. So the Philistine now starts taunting him. He disdained him. See that in verse 20, uh, 42? For he was but a youth and ready with a handsome appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? 
And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. See, this is a spiritual battle. And the other side knows it. It's tragic that our side doesn't know it or should know it and then ignores it. How pathetic is that? The other side knows it and they never forget it. So uh, the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. You're going up against Yahweh Tzivayoth, the Lord God of the armies. And uh, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I will strike you down and remove your head from you. I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky, to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. There is a God. All right. And all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's and He will give you into our hands. All right, so just make sure if you're going to claim this as a promise that you are actually fighting the Lord's battle and not your own battle and trying to bring Him into it. Okay? The battle is the Lord's. That means it's His battle. Not the, the fight you just picked out for yourself. And uh, that battle's not the Lord's. That's yours. You picked that one. <laughs> okay? All right. So that's the principle of taunting. Second Samuel twenty-one twenty-one. More giants. And you look at all these guys. Verse 18, it came about after this, there was war again with the Philistines at Gob, or Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was among the descendants or the kinsmen of the giant. So here's, uh, we got Goliath as a giant, we got Saph as a giant. There was war with the Philistines again at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jerorgim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. All right, so there's another, and, and of course now you get into all kinds of manuscript questions and how many Goliaths would there? Is this the same Goliath? All right. Then there was war at Gath again. There was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. He also had been born to the giant. When he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. So this is not Jonathan, the son of Saul. This is a nephew of David uh, named Jonathan. And he struck down this other, uh, this uh, 24 finger and toe guy. Uh, so these four were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So Goliath is the first, and then these other four. Got it? All right, anyway, we have uh, verse 21 there, when he defied Israel. There's the defiance, the expression of complete disdain, the taunting, okay? And uh, so I think, and there's different ways you can harmonize these chapters, I think there's different ways uh, to understand some of these names even. Um, but if, if in fact these kinsmen, and if they are children of, born to the giant, I think it's pretty clear, um, Anyway, so you have Goliath plus four. In other words, why did David pick up five smooth stones? I think, yeah, David was going to take them all out. See, anyway, it's curious to me. But there's the taunting. Second Kings nineteen. This is now uh, hundreds of years later about 300 years after David. Uh, now King Hezekiah is uh, king in, of the southern uh, kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom has already been swept away and now the Assyrians are at the gates of Jerusalem and they are taunting Hezekiah. They are taunting the southern kingdom of Judah. And so um, verse 1, when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, entered the house of the Lord. He, he gets... Uh, he realizes that it's a spiritual battle. He needs to be right with God. Goes to prayer. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. 
They say to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, rebuke and rejection, for children have come to birth and there is no strength to deliver. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master the king of Assyria has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. And so uh, this is the king's focus. He's gone to the, to the temple. He's making it a matter of prayer and he's sending his agents uh, to find Isaiah. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah and here's what happens. And there's going to be a prophecy of deliverance and, uh, and these things come out. By the way, this story is told not only in First Kings or Second Kings, it's also told in the book of Isaiah. So we got parallel there in, uh, in these different books. And um, anyway, we can uh, grab a little bit more on this. Isaiah, uh, so the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Isaiah said to them, thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. See, it's blasphemy when you're taunting God. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And so uh, this starts happening here. All right. I guess we'll let that go. His prayer comes in verse 14. There's uh, real faith here on Hezekiah's part. And then uh, the deliverance that follows. All right. So that's Second Kings chapter 19. No. Yes. Verse 4, 16, 22, and 23. Verse 16, when Hezekiah is praying, uh, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to taunt, mock, reproach the living God. That's verse 16, and then verses 22 and 23. When Isaiah is answering, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? Against the Holy One of Israel. When you're mocking Jerusalem, you're mocking me, is what God says here. Through your messengers you have reproached the Lord and you have said with my many chariots I came up to the heights of the mountains to the remotest parts of Lebanon I cut down its tall cedars, its choice cypresses I entered the farthest lodging place, its thickest forest anyway all these things. I dug wells and drank foreign waters with the sole of my feet I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. So Sennacherib was not afraid of anybody. The victories that Assyria had over, over Lebanon, the victories that they had over Egypt, they're not afraid of anybody. And they're certainly not uh, intimidated by the fortifications around Jerusalem. And uh, so yeah, you can expect from a pagan worldview uh, why would Jerusalem be an obstacle? Why would, uh, it's not particularly impressive, uh, certainly not compared to uh, these other places. Problem is of course Yahweh Elohim is the Lord God of Israel. <laughs> so you're, you're mocking the creator of heaven and earth. And uh, so the, the deliverance is on the way. This, by the way, is where the angel of the Lord flies over that night. It says in verse 35, um, the promise comes in verse 34, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. <laughs> well, guess our army's gone, time to go home. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh, and that's where he's going to die. All right, so that's 2 Kings 19. Finally then, Zephaniah, Zephaniah 2. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Malachi is the ultimate book of the Old Testament. Um, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah is the penultimate Haggai is the pro-penultimate, and uh, that makes Zephaniah the pre-pro-penultimate, the fourth to last book of the Old Testament.
in case you were wondering. Zephaniah 2. I have heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon, which they have taunted my people and become arrogant against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts. What's this about? Again, it's a vow. It's an oath. As I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits, a perpetual desolation. The remnant of my people will plunder them and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. And so that's judgment upon them for their mocking. This they will have in return for their pride because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord of hosts. Remember, humble yourself under the mighty, God, uh, mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time. If you, if you boast, if you exalt yourself, you will be brought low. And then one more, it's not on the screen, but look at Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, and here's a taunt. Vocabulary is slightly different, but the context is the same. I didn't include it on the slide because it's a different verb than we have in, uh, in uh, Proverbs. But nevertheless, uh, when you're talking about the five eye wills of Satan and you're talking about his pride and being brought low, are we familiar with Isaiah 14? Verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven and, and, and the five eye wills. And here's the fall of Satan. But notice what this is. When you back up to the very beginning of the, of the chapter... It's a promise of the millennium. It's a promise of the second advent. It's a promise of the coming kingdom. And so there will be a future time of glory for Israel. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. He will again choose Israel and settle them in their own land. Strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. There's going to be blessings in the millennium for the Jewish people. Peoples will take them along and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord as male servants and female servants. We're talking servitude in the millennial kingdom. Okay? And that gets touchy sometimes in different uh, circumstances because, of course, we've abolished slavery in, in the church age. We've abolished slavery in America We've abolished slavery as much as we can around the world, although it still is practiced in African and Muslim places. In any event, there will be male and female servants in the millennial kingdom. They will take their captors captive and will rule over their oppressors. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. So really, look what it's called. The whole chapter, or what follows, verse 3, what follows is a taunt. It is a mocking song. It is a taunting song. And it's a sanctified one because God wrote it. (laughs) He wrote it and He blessed Israel. This is going to be their song. This is going to be their taunting song when they enter into the land. So you think about a song that you win as a, or that you receive as a a victory, you know, a consequence of victory in a war, victory in battle and whatever. We have the Marine Corps song talking about uh, the the Tripoli, right? You know, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. And uh, the Marines are singing their song about, uh, you know, land and sea and air. And I don't even know how it goes. I wasn't a Marine. We'll get Doug up here to sing the song after, after class. But you know what I'm talking about? And so here's a song that, uh, is going to be their taunt song against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, how fury has ceased. And, and really it starts in verse 4. All too often we start our context for Satan in verse 12 because that's the fall from heaven. But really it goes back to verse 4 with pomp and maggots and all that fun stuff in verse 11. Anyway. We either taunt God or we honor God. We want to honor God. And the second half of, of our verse, of verse 31, is about honoring God. And the verb for honor is featured six times in Proverbs. It's a word of heaviness. It's a word of weight. So if you find yourself gaining weight, you are um, honored. Okay? 
uh, in the ancient world, uh, a, a heavy person was clearly an important person. A heavy person was uh, likely a, a king or a ruler or a wealthy person. Um, if, if, if you were heavy, it was an indicator of your status. Okay, uh, For men and women alike. And uh, the sign of beauty on a woman when Pharaoh, when Pharaoh thought that Sarah was, was beautiful. You know, the, the idea of a, a matronly type... Um, oh, I'm going to stop. I'm going to get in trouble. The verb is kavod. The adjective is kavad. The Hebrew speaks of heavy. And if something is heavy, if something is weighty, it is impressive, it is to be honored. If something is light, if something is trivial, if something is uh, thin then it is something uh, to be mocked, you know, something of, of, of a ridicule that uh, you clearly aren't important because you're, you're starving, you're barely, you can barely feed yourself, you're just so, you're such a lightweight as far as that goes. All right, so that's the mindset in the ancient world. And uh, it's a verb, we've had it six times already, and the idea of honoring God, putting a heavy weight on His um, importance, you know, what tips the scales? When we talk about weights on the scale, right? You're, you're prioritizing. You're, and you're, you're establishing, well, what's heavier? What's worth more? What's, uh, what's more important? Um, going to church or sleeping in on a Sunday morning? Okay, well, how does that weigh in the scales? So we still have the idea of weight for, for heaviness, for importance, for priorities. What, what is it that we honor? Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first of all your produce. Your, the, the way you spend your money signifies whether you regard the Lord or not. Honor the Lord from your wealth. You can communicate a high regard for Jesus Christ or you can communicate a low regard for Jesus Christ simply by virtue of your budget your household budget. And we're told to honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. That's why first fruits offering comes first. Uh, Proverbs 4, 8. Prize her and she will exalt you. This is about wisdom. The right kind of girl you want to be hugging. Uh, wisdom is feminine. Um, so the beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom, and with all you're acquiring, get understanding. Prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. And this is the, the kavod, this is the verb, to honor, and or to glory, to glorify. And she will honor you if you embrace her. No one that uh, makes the Word of God their priority is going to come into eternal shame. It is, uh, it is always an exaltation. That's Proverbs 4.8. Proverbs 12.9. So, so those first two are in the uh, parental section of Proverbs and it continues in the uh, adult section of Proverbs, the personal and public wisdom of Proverbs 12. So we teach our kids these doctrines and hopefully they will carry it into their adult capacity. Better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant than he who honors himself and lacks bread. Remember that one? This is a guy that's, that's putting on the display so he can convince people that he's, he's well-to-do. And uh, it's all just self-promotion. And uh, as he's honoring himself, and he's, he's really uh, he's, he's struggling. He's in so much debt trying to, pay, trying to live up to the Joneses that, uh, that uh, he'd be better off if he just was uh, humble and debt free. Uh, Proverbs thirteen eighteen. Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline, but he who honors reproof or regards reproof will be honored. So God will honor you, but you've got to be humble before the reproof. If you're not willing to accept reproof, then uh, yeah, you're going to limit the amount of honor you receive at the judgment seat of Christ. 14.31 is our passage today. 27.18. 27.18. This comes in the 
later collection that were that were compiled during the days of uh, Hezekiah and added to the canon at that time. This is where we see iron sharpens iron in verse 17. So one man sharpens another. He who tends the fig tree will eat its fruit and he who cares for his master will be honored. So we've got to deal with that. Don't forget if you think your master is that human being uh, don't forget who you're working for. All right, so honor your master by uh, honoring your master, and uh, you will be honored. It is the term that's used for children to honor their parents in Exodus 20 and verse 12, Deuteronomy 5 and verse 16, the first commandment with the promise. You have the Ten Commandments, you got the expectation, of course. <clears throat> Do we know the Decalogue? We know that the early commandments are all about uh, God and, and uh, having only one God and not making idols and, and those things, observing the Sabbath. All those early commandments are about God. And then it turns to uh, earthly commandments as far as uh, that goes. Honor your father and your mother and your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And that comes before murder, adultery, stealing, perjury. That's false witness in a court. Coveting. Okay, Honoring your father and mother. That's our same expression that we have here. So we want to honor God as we are gracious to the poor. We want to honor God with our wealth, with our money, just as we honor our parents. Deuteronomy 5 is uh, parallel to Exodus 20. Elsewhere it is translated glorify or glorious. Either glorify as a verb or glorified as a noun or glorious as an adjective or... or uh, other expressions, and we should be familiar with these. Psalm 22, Psalm 86, Psalm 87, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 24. The Bible has a lot to say about honoring. The Bible has a lot to say about glorying, glorifying. And a lot of times it's the same verb. It's the same verb. Who knows what Psalm 22 is about? Jesus on the cross, that's right. That's Psalm 22, Jesus on the cross. David wrote it a thousand years before Jesus. And all the descriptions here of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all of the verses that follow, David had a, had a vision of, of Calvary. He had a vision of what Jesus was going to go through. And he saw it from a first-person perspective. He saw it from the, the, the dream, from the, the, the first-person perspective where he himself was the one who was pierced. So they pierced my hands and my feet. He saw that from the perspective of the victim, of the crucifixion victim. And he looked around and he saw the mocking and he saw the, uh, the, the, the wagging of the lips and, the, and all of that. So these are the words of David, but these are the words of Jesus a thousand words early, a thousand years early. And yet, when he's praying for deliverance, he's anticipating the celebration after the deliverance. So verse 19 says, but you, O Lord, see, it says after, if you're familiar with this, it's just fun to read through because you have, um, in verse 18, they divide my garments among them for my clothing, they cast lots. And that's true. It seems contradictory, but it's true. They divided certain things, but then they cast lots for the one thing they didn't want to divide. And both, both halves of that contradiction, contradictory verse are both true. But you, O Lord, be not far off. You, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. Save me. And he knows the answer is there. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. So he anticipates what he's going to do once he is delivered. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. Make Him heavy. Honor Him. And stand in awe of Him, all you descendants of Israel. For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him for help, He heard. Anyway, it goes on. There's more. This is a powerful psalm. But that, that verb is used there in verse 23 for glorify Him. Make Him heavy. Honor Him. 
And this is, this is a privilege. I think it's a joy. This is a, a blessing that we get when we endure the, the valley of the shadow of death, when we go through the testing. And it's not pleasant to go through the testing, and we would prefer not to. But He didn't ask our preference. <laughs> He's walking us through there. He knows the journey we have to go. He knows the test we have to face. And so when we go through it, now we've got a privilege to honor Him in a way that we really couldn't before. We can glorify Him in a way that we really couldn't before. Because now with hindsight we can look back, we can see the crashing waters of the Red Sea, we can see, we can see the deliverance, we can see the resurrection after the crucifixion, we can see the production. What happened because He took me through this test I didn't want to go through? And now with the hindsight... Now I can glorify Him in ways I never could before. And I can praise Him in ways that somebody else who hasn't gone through this test yet, they can't quite praise Him the way that I can because I've gone through this test. And now I want to not only praise Him, I want to come alongside my brother, my sister when it's their turn to go through this test. I want to be with them as they go through it. There's uh, opportunities there, all right? Fruit-bearing opportunities if only you submit to the uh, will of God in the matter. Psalm uh, 86 verse 9 and verse 12. And um, he has all of these these supplications in verse 1. Incline be great, preserve, be gracious, make glad, you're good, give ear. In the day of trouble I call upon you, for you will, you will answer me, there's none like you. I mean, how many verses is he spending until he finally gets around to his point, right? Incline your ear, preserve, be gracious, make glad, uh, you're good, give ear, give heed. In the day of trouble I call upon you, you will answer me. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. They shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Think about that. But our verb here in verse 9 highlights it. Uh, they will worship before you, they will come, they will glorify your name. Okay, We're not there yet. <laughs> when the United Nations gets together, it's not to glorify the name of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. Teach me your way, O Lord, I walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. This is his prayer during his testing. He's not saying, take my problems away. He says, teach me your way, O Lord. What am I going to learn as I go through this test? What do I learn in this process? I'm going to walk in your truth. I want to be more focused on doctrine than I've ever been before because this test is tougher than anything I've ever gone through. Unite my heart to fear your name. I fear you now, but I know I can fear you more. Unite my heart. In other words, with your heart to fear your name. And I will give my thanks to you. When you determine this test is over, when you determine all this is done, when my heart is united with your heart, when I have learned your ways, I'm going to give you thanksgiving. And I'm going to glorify your name forever. I'm going to glorify your name in a way I can't do it yet because my heart's not right yet. See how that works? For your loving kindness towards me is great. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. And yeah, there's still uh, adversaries, there's still arrogant men, and yeah, they're still doing what they're doing. In any event, it's a, it's a powerful psalm. That's Psalm 86. How about Psalm 87? He continues. This one's not David's though. This is a psalm of the sons of Korah. And um, his foundation is, is uh, in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of thee are spoken, right? O city of God. So next time you sing that hymn, you know where it came from. Psalm 87.3. Heavy things, 
glorious things. Let's honor God. Glorious things of God are spoken. And uh, the city of God is the place to do it. I shall mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia, Tyre, Ethiopia. Uh, this one was born there, etc., etc. So who's Rahab famous for? You know, that's Egypt, by the way. Who's Babylon famous for? Who's Philistia famous for? Well, the most famous Philistine was Goliath. Who is the most famous Babylonian? Who is the most famous Egyptian? And all these guys. Who's the most famous from Tyre? Who's the most famous from Ethiopia? This one was born there. This one was born there. So you think about it, all these locations and all these places. Who's the most famous one to ever come out of, you know, the most famous uh, person ever to be born in Seattle, Washington? Okay? Any ideas? No? Don't know? Don't care? Never mind. We can have a discussion later if you'd like. All right. Um, and beyond all that, who came from Israel? Who came from Zion? But of Zion it, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High Himself will establish her. All right. Anyway, look forward to that. Jesus is the one that uh, is to be glorified. So that's Psalm 87, 3, glorious things of thee are spoken. Isaiah 9, 1. Goodness, goodness. There will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. I mean, throughout the Old Testament, seriously? The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, what what great things happened there? What great victories? What, uh, not a lot. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So here's 700 years before Christ celebrating a portion of Israel that was rather ignored throughout most of the Old Testament. Uh, He shall make it heavy. He shall make it glorious. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. You know, think about it. And here's, who was the disciple that said, can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, I mean, you just think it's just a reputation. You're thinking, you know, it's like, you know, things we despise today in our country. You know, really? What comes from you know, and we, we despise different cities for whatever reason. And uh, wow, Seattle? Something decent comes out of Seattle? Are you killing, kidding me? They're just a bunch of, you know, loons that are all strung out on Starbucks coffee and, and Nirvana grunge music or whatever. And you just think, can anything good come out of Seattle? And uh, well, yeah, how about Jesus? How about the salvation of the world? So that's uh, Isaiah 9, 1. And then finally Isaiah 24, 15. Uh, More glory. And uh, this is uh, Isaiah's little apocalypse. 24 through 27 are kind of like the book of Revelation. It's apocalyptic. It's... uh, looking forward to uh, destruction, it's looking forward to salvation, the uh, kingdom that the Jews have to look forward to. And uh, in this context, glorify the Lord in the east, the name of the Lord and the God of Israel and the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. Glory to the righteous one. Boy, what if it were today, right? And we have the hymns and we sing the song, glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. But are we really there yet? No. Not until Jesus Christ comes and conquers. Then we can sing the glory, glory, hallelujah. All right? And, and honestly, I think it's a little, little bit blasphemous to, to, uh, to sing that. Um, some of the songs that were written in the, in the uh, well, the, the, the victory of the north over the south and the freeing of the slaves and the things. I understand it. Um, 
okay, sing a song, you won the, you won the war, but if you're equating this with Jesus Christ's victory at Armageddon and the establishment of the millennial kingdom on earth, in my mind you just crossed a line there. And uh, when, the, when the north defeated the south, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy they did, don't get me wrong, okay? I'm not defending the confederacy, but when the north defended the south, he was not trampling through the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Okay? Trampling through the vintage is second advent. That's when he conquers Antichrist and establishes the millennial kingdom and aspects there. And we see it here. Um, when the whole world will glory, the ends of the earth will hear these songs. Glory to the righteous one. In the meantime, <laughs> as Isaiah says, but I say, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me, the treacherous deal treacherously, and the treacherous deal very treacherously. In the meantime, until we're singing glory, glory, hallelujah, the Jews have to go through hell on earth. They have to go through the tribulation. They have to be nearly exterminated. They have to be, they're going to go through conflict that's going to make the, Holoc- the German Holocaust seem like nothing. And what they're going to go through at the hands of Antichrist. And uh, it's described there. So, um, read Isaiah 24 sometime and you'll see that. And uh, 24, 25, 26, 27. That's Proverbs 14, 31. Are we going to honor God or are we going to mock God? Are we going to honor Him or are we going to mock Him? He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. When you are gracious, when you display grace, that very graciousness is honoring to God Himself, the God of grace. So show grace. And as you show grace, you're honoring the God of grace. All right, Proverbs 14, 32. The wicked is thrust down by his wrongdoing, but the righteous has a refuge when he dies. Now we've got a puzzle. Now we've got a puzzle. And boy, how do I start this? We've got a puzzle, and it's a puzzle that connects to manuscripts. It's a puzzle that connects to uh, a text criticism issue, all right? Because we have a manuscript that doesn't really read what it reads, or was there a, was there a, a typo as it was written, okay? You know, human beings are prone to human error. And if you're copying down a, if you're type, if you're copying down a, a scroll, you can accidentally switch two letters around, right? You can accidentally switch two letters around. You can do that on a Scrabble board where you intend to put the I-E and instead you put E-I and you misspelled your word and your opponent challenges it and you lose your turn feeling like a moron because you knew how to spell it. You just put the tiles in the wrong order. (sighs) Glad I got that off my chest. All right. Scribes can do the same thing. Scribes can crisscross two letters and that's what happens here. This word for death is most likely a mistake. It most likely ought to be integrity. And if you think, wow, how, does, how do you confuse death with integrity? Well, they're very closely in their spellings in, uh, in Hebrew. Of course, in English it doesn't work, but um, we do have a puzzle here. So we'll look at it um, and I'll explain it. We don't have time uh, this morning. So next week when we come back to this, we're going to break this down. Verse 32 has a manuscript puzzle. And uh, so what is the righteous one's refuge? Is his refuge his death or is his refuge his integrity? Where do you run to for refuge? Are you going to rely in your integrity? Is, the, is your integrity your refuge? Or is death your refuge? Okay. In other words, are you just looking forward to dying because that's going to be your refuge? And if so, does that... Does that resonate with the rest of Proverbs? Does it resonate with the Old Testament? Does, do we have other passages in Scripture where we can say, you know what, all these problems go away as soon as we're dead, so let's just, let's just die now. Let's just, you, know, you see what I'm saying? It's not exactly a Proverbs philosophy that death is a refuge. Okay? Now death is a hope, and there are things that, that, we, that we look forward to in death but as far as being a refuge from present problems, I don't think Proverbs tells us that. 
Whereas integrity is a refuge. And Proverbs does tell us that. And Psalms tells us that. And Job tells us that. There's a lot of passages that speak to integrity and how we can cling to our integrity, how we can display our integrity. And it actually works out better that way, I I think. So when when I view the manuscripts and have to decide which one was original, and when even the Hebrews themselves, they put one in their manuscript and then in the apparatus they list the other one. They list the other one in the apparatus, you see, because the, they were so reverent on their text. Even if they thought it was wrong, even if they knew for a fact it was wrong, they wouldn't change the text. They would just put the alternate reading in the, in the margins, see. So um, the Septuagint, by the way, the Septuagint, did they translate it with Thanatos? Did they translate it with death? No, the, the Septuagint translated it with integrity. All right? And if the Septuagint translated with integrity, why did they translate it with integrity? Because the manuscripts they were working with had the word for integrity. They didn't have the word for death. So the translators in the 2nd and 3rd centuries B.C., the translators were working with manuscripts that are older than manuscripts we have today. They were working with manuscripts that were older than the manuscripts where the death typo had found its way in there. See? And so it becomes a good clue for us. Uh, These are the kind of things we do. Now the movie we saw last night was only about Greek manuscripts, so it's not about Hebrew manuscripts. But uh, we have blessings. The Septuagint helps us to to resolve Hebrew uh, manuscript puzzles. Hebrew manuscript text criticism questions. Uh, because, well, how did, the, how did they translate it when they put it into Greek? That's a big clue. How did they translate it when they put it into uh, Syriac, for example? When, or the, when in the, the Peshitta, when the, when the Hebrew uh, text was translated into Syriac? How did they ha- handle it when the Samaritans drafted their own Pentateuch? The Samaritans had their own Pentateuch. They took Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they put it all into Samaritan. And the Samaritan Pentateuch, um, it's not God-breathed and inspired. It's not, it, it doesn't have the authority of the Bible, but it helps us to resolve some questions when there's some uh, puzzles in the Hebrew manuscripts. Right? Make sense? Also, the Jews themselves, they, they wrote commentaries on the Hebrew. And their commentaries are called the Aramaic Targums. And in the Aramaic Targums, they're making commentaries on the Hebrew manuscripts. And so a lot of those Aramaic Targums are, because uh, Aramaic is so close to Hebrew anyway, a lot of those Aramaic Targums help us to, to solve some of the Hebrew puzzles. So anyway, the, the text, and I'm out of time, but you got that word there is the word for death, and you got that word there is the word for integrity. All right? And you really, really have to look close I think, can I zoom this? I can zoom, whoops, go back. Back, back, back. And zoom in. I said zoom. Here we go. I've never tried this before. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) Wow. Woohoo. So, now, even if you don't read Hebrew, you can still see things that match and don't match, right? So both words start with the beth, the b. Both words end with the, the, uh, the wow, right? Both words have a wow in the middle. Don't worry about the dot. The dot's on top of that wow, and the dot is in the middle of that wow. Don't worry about the dots. There were no dots in the early manuscripts. There were no dots when the Septuagint was being translated. So the, the scribes that were working with the Hebrew manuscripts that were translating the Septuagint, they didn't have those dots. They just had a, a, a baith, a wow, a wow, a baith, a wow, a wow. And then what they swapped was the M and the T. All right? So there's your M and there's your T. That's your, your maim and your tau. And here they swapped them. They put the tau there and they put the maim there. Very easy to do, especially when those letters look similar anyway. So it's either Bemotho, his death, 
or bethomu or bethumo, his integrity. So is it a motho or a thomo? Bemotho, bethomo. And they're very close. See, it's in English where death and integrity are totally different, right? We would never confuse death and integrity as English speakers. But bemotho, bethomo, those are very easy to to swap. Very easy. A a slip of the eye, a slip of the tongue. Uh, You just mishear them, okay? So that's the kind of stuff. And thank God there are PhD kind of scholars, these dusty, crusty professors that uh, they, they live for this stuff. They do this stuff seven days a week. They do this stuff for 50 years. They dedicate themselves to looking at fragments of manuscripts and pottery and all kinds of stuff. And, and you know, um, thank God for them. Because the work they do benefits us. All right. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your grace and truth. Thank you for the uh, movie last night. Was, it was a blessing as well. And I pray it was the only night it was in theaters, but I pray that it gets a wider exposure and it can be released to a wider audience and that perhaps skeptics, unbelievers might come to see with an open mind, might come to see how reliable the New Testament Greek manuscripts truly are. Uh, there's been nothing like it in the history of the world. And uh, just thank you for it, Father. So um, bless the, uh, those endeavors and uh, the Logos Bible Software uh, Faith Life Company that produced it. And, uh, and, uh, and bless us as well as we continue our study here in the book of Proverbs. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.